Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I have the pleasure to talk with Michael Jeffries, who's the author of Paint the White House Black, Barack Obama and the Meaning of Race in America. Hope that you enjoy the conversation with Michael. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and I have the chance to talk today to Michael Jeffries. Michael, how are you? Doing great. Thanks, Heath. Michael, it's a real pleasure to read your book, Paint the White House Black. Uh, Before we get to the book, um, because not everybody knows all of your backstory like I do, and I only know portions of it, maybe you could just tell the audience a little bit about, you know, where you were before writing this book, where you are now, what what your path to your academic home is right now. Yeah, well, I was a sociology major in college, and then I I went to grad school and did PhD work in African American studies, and in African American studies in my program you end up specializing within a discipline. So I'm trained as a sociologist, and my work coming out of graduate school was mostly about hip-hop music and rap. And I wrote a book that looked at how rap music listeners understand their music and what they make of hip-hop culture. And that was really the kind of start of my academic research. But the other kind of arm of my research was grounded in a much harder sort of qualitative sociology about racial politics. So I really wanted to write a book that took advantage of my interdisciplinary training and opened up Obama studies beyond one disciplinary home. And I really hope that that's what uh, Paint the White House Black does, is it allows for connections between disciplines, folks from literature, folks from sociology, political science, all those different disciplines and fields sort of coming together around this topic. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and, you know, I've had the chance, you know, over the last, say, six months or so to talk to a couple of other people who share um, both your vision for your academic pursuits, but also some of your background. And I had the chance to talk with uh, Enid Logan about her book um, and Wendy Roth about her books. And, re- and reading yours, I was I was uh, struck by some of the similarities. And so this really is finding, a, a, I think, a really interesting home in this space that exists. I don't know if it's either between disciplines or um, building one discipline on another, but, but in either case, I think the, the book, um, really uh, accomplishes what you described very well. Um, so let's let's get to 
the actual book, and you know, maybe we can just start with the title. I'm always interested in how a book is put together and you know, whether the original vision for the book is what we now read and things like simple titles sometimes relate to that. And so the, the title, Paint the White House Black, your title, was it the working title? Is it something that your uh, publisher, Stanford University Press, uh, recommended? How did you put this book together in that way? It was my title all along, and it, it really is one of the central ideas of the book. I mean, in part, it's an old George Clinton song, right? I mean, so that's where the actual phrase, Paint the White House Black, comes from. But that's not what the title really means in this case. Um, the title is about how racial meaning disguises itself and takes over the meaning of other ideas and discourses. So paint the White House black, we know that there's a racial connotation to that idea, but the language itself, if you're sort of looking at what the words mean on their own without reference to race, is not supposed to be anything racial about the White House. But the phrase impregnates itself kind of with a, with a racial meaning that um, gives it a little added weight and moral significance. So it's really about how race takes over the meanings of things that aren't necessarily racial in name. And, and yes, very much to that point, early on in the book you write um, that you, you, quote, insist that race operates like a language. What do you mean by this? Right. So... I don't mean that race has kind of grammatical and syntactic rules or that it operates purely as a language because we know race is political and institutional and has material effects on our lives. But here I'm drawing on the work of Evelyn Higginbotham, who's a historian and black feminist researcher, who talks about precisely this process where race disguises its relationships with a host of other phenomena and social forces. It produces meaning. Um, it covers up meaning. It makes things that should be simple really difficult and tricky to talk about, and it makes things that are difficult to talk about seem simple. And that process of kind of making meaning from thin air and reducing meaning that should be complicated, that's the kind of linguistic process that I'm talking about. It's about where meaning comes from, and that's the idea behind the kind of linguistic power of race. Yeah, a phrase that you use... Uh, throughout the book, and you know, kind of one of the the two big sort of framing devices that uses this phrase of the politics of inheritance, and and so I wonder what what is the challenge that this politics of inheritance inheritance um, poses to our understanding of race, and and maybe even you know sort of broader way to the Obama presidency, right? So this politics of inheritance idea is uh, something that I try to write about. It's something that's separate from kind of dynastic political power. It's not about passing down political power in that way. It's about imagining these exemplary historical actors who are supposed to be the most virtuous, the most moral examples of what a political citizen should look like. And then when we look at political leadership and standards for citizenship, we have these implicit desires or assumptions that those who lead us and those who are rightfully considered citizens will parrot the way that these exemplary figures talked, and importantly, their bodies will actually look the way that these bodies look like. So in America, the classic example of this is the founding fathers, who all happen to be straight, wealthy, white men. And as a result, our model of citizenship, both legally and in our political imagination, um, sort of beats 
the requirement of white masculinity, white maleness into our minds as the sole model for virtuous American citizenship. And it doesn't necessarily happen um, purely in a legislative sense, although there have been many laws, obviously, restricting citizenship to white men. It happens in the way that we imagine these figures and the way that we play out our political ceremonies and our rituals as well. Yeah, and, and you know, and, and part of sort of this gets to um, some of the, the writings of the president himself, and so the writings that he did about his own life and his own background prior to becoming president. And, you know, I was, I was struck with going through this having just previously read Andre Gillespie's book, and we've sort of gone back and forth about, um, about that book. And, and uh, that, that book that she wrote, she, she has a very different method and was able to sort of confront the subject of her book, which is, which is Mayor Cory Booker. And so I was wondering just about, you know, how you, what, what is your method? Um, it's not the method um, that, that Gillespie uses. You take on kind of a, a different uh, uh, method to, to uh, your analysis. And so how do you do your research? Well, there are a couple of different methods that I use. I mean, th the first thing is, you know, there's a chapter on multiracial identity that's a straight qualitative sociology project where I go out and interview folks who identify as biracial or multiracial, and I report on the qualitative data that I find. So that's something that's sort of widely recognizable. But for the section that you're talking about, about Obama's own writing, you're right, I don't actually confront the president. And, and more broadly, I'm not actually interested in Obama's sort of true beliefs about these ideas, right? The goal of the book is not to get inside of Obama's head and figure out what he truly thinks. It's to use all of the kind of texts that circulate in our cultural world, including texts that Obama himself has written, to figure out how to make sense of the production of racial meaning. So when I engage his memoir, Dreams from My Father, I'm not engaging it um, to figure out some truth about who Obama is as a person. I'm engaging it to look at how his journey toward racial identity demonstrates these broader concepts in the production of racial meaning which include intersectionality, right, the way that race combines with things like class and gender uh, to, give its me to get its meaning and its power, and includes these ideas about inheritance as something that's crucial to understanding who we are as national citizens and as racialized beings. Yeah, and, and this, the, so the intersectionality is kind of that second um, uh, thing that you use in the book, and, and you, in, in sort of introducing the concept, you, you know, you suggest that uh, the president is, uh, is male and, and comes from a relatively affluent background and is straight, and so therefore shares a lot in, in common with um, his uh, predecessors in the White House. So maybe you can go into a little bit more depth about this idea of intersectionality and, and how it helps you process uh, uh, the president and also the, the larger meaning that we take away from him. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of really important things to say about this. The first one is that I want to be really clear, as I am in the book, that I'm not sort of reinventing the wheel here. I'm building on a well-established research and intellectual tradition instigated by black feminist scholars about the idea that we have to consider race, class, and gender simultaneously. So once we commit to that principle, right, not just considering race and gender and class, but considering the way that these discourses and social forces change each other and impact each other, once we commit to that principle, 
it becomes much easier for us to recognize the way that a single person, a single figure, someone like Obama, can hold some privileges like masculinity and privileges with respect to class position, but still be disadvantaged by the way his body is read and interpreted along the lines of ethnicity and race. Taking an intersectional approach allows us to disaggregate and multiply those different identity markers to figure out how to make sense of a person's uh, social value and the structural and cultural challenges that he or she has to navigate in order to you know, achieve political success or just kind of make it through the world as a social being. Yeah. One of the, so I just, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the, the Gillespie book, and, and, and both of you are confronting in different ways this narrative that, that happened in sort of, you know, 2009 and sort of happens again right now um, about this post-racial uh, uh, era that we have entered into. And both of you, you confront this idea in a similar way. And so, you know, what does your book do with this? assertion made by, um, you know, not always made by academics, but made by political commentators, and you reference some of them uh, in the book. But, but what do you make of this, these statements about we have entered a new era and it's defined by its post-racial characteristics? Yeah, well, I mean, the classic interpretations, right, the things that that phrase are always, is always sort of supposed to mean, things along the lines of um, accepting the presidential victory as kind of the last hurdle for non-whites, or accepting the presidential victory as evidence that there are no barriers to uh, achievement or social equality these days for non-whites. And as we know, it's a way to eliminate the need to grapple with racism and conquer racial injustice and continue the kind of fight for social justice along racial lines. But the way that I try to talk about it in the book is to separate it from discussions about Obama's kind of personal style or unique contributions as the reasons for this post-racial revolution, this so-called post-racial revolution. And by taking the emphasis off of the individual and looking at the actual political institutions that shape black life, things like the black press and the black church, those bodies that mobilize us and inform the production of black ideologies, we get a much better understanding of how this idea of post-racialism came to take shape. And the understanding that we arrive at is really a story about class and access to the means of communication and the production of uh, political movements. Instead of looking at the success of Obama or his personality or his charisma, and how that might lend itself to a post-racial reading, we have to look at the way that black political institutions of the past have been replaced, and the new ones that have popped up don't serve an especially potent function for black working-class people, or working-class people more broadly, working-class people of color more broadly. You quote the president at the start of one of the chapters, um, and he says... um, I never bought into the notion that by electing me, somehow we were entering into a post-racial period. Now, you note just a little bit earlier, you note throughout the book that you're not attempting to get into the president's head. But, you know, if you were to sort of speculate, 
how do you think that the, the president actually does make sense of his historical um, importance and the larger um, setting that his presidency sits into? Yeah, have you thought about sort of what his maybe at the the end of his presidency he's going to probably write something, but what? what he suspects about the world? Yeah, I mean, I have thought about it a little bit, in part because I teach a seminar about Obama, so I've read, you know, pretty pretty widely, especially about the kind of beginnings of the 2008 campaign, and there's, I believe there's a section in uh, Richard Wolff's book called Renegade, where he, he notes the conversation between Obama and a senator or an advisor, whose name I can't remember, and Obama acknowledges that something along the lines of it would be really cool if he won because it would show other young people of color that it was possible to achieve the presidency. So I think it would be foolish of us to dismiss the possibility that he has no, that he has a, a, a pretty important sense of his symbolic value as a person of color who makes it all the way to the White House. He's certainly aware of all this. But I think like the rest of us, as his presidency has matured and we're sort of somewhere in the middle now, he's probably realizing the limitations of these kinds of uh, symbolic ruptures or these kinds of symbolic advancements, right? Without institutional changes along the lines of class and race segregation and mass incarceration, the material lives of black and brown people in this country aren't going to see massive improvements uh, during his administration. That's just uh, a material fact, right? So mm -hmm. I think that he's probably, like the rest of us, coming to a realization that we have to temper our expectations about the value that this symbolic achievement um, can really have on people's material lives. And you, you also have a whole chapter on the First Lady. Um, as, as related but, but not identical to the, the President's um, uh, part of the story. So what does her role in national politics um, say about these issues? What is, how does she, why did you choose to, to add her to the book and, and devote a, a whole chapter to trying to understand her public image? Well, she's such a remarkable figure in so many ways. She's constrained by a very peculiar office, right? The title that she holds is really a symbolic title with pretty poorly defined obligations and responsibilities. So she functions as a symbol whether she wants to or not. And then because she's such a compelling public figure, she gets all sort of sorts of attention because she's engaging and vibrant and sharp um, and stylish. She gets even more attention than the other first ladies might get. And this is right, in addition to the kind of race and gender intersection that informs so much of the thinking about her. And the case I make in the chapter is that, of course, she's subject to some of the classic racist and sexist stereotypes of uh, black womanhood. But if you look at much of the right-wing criti right criticism that Michelle Obama has had to endure, there's a slightly different strand that keeps presenting itself, and it's based on a resentment of a person like her who has achieved um, economic stability and resides in the upper echelon in society, having the nerve or the audacity to then complain 
to use other people's words, right, about mm-hmm. America, or object to racism or sexism or the way she's treated. And that particular paradox, I think, is a function of a, a slight shift in these classic representations of black womanhood, because there's the, people like Michelle Obama don't have a right to complain because they've already made it. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think that's why I felt the need to kind of really emphasize the intersections of race, gender, and class in that uh, final chapter on Michelle. Yeah, you know, one of the things I really liked about the book, and also what I like about you talking about the book, is, and it's 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 not written as a as a as a teaching book, but you you're very honest about you know you you also sit in the classroom, and so you have to um, teach about these very same subjects, and you you know we don't often get to teach at the level that we write, but but you do have to confront sort of these two sides, and you you sort of raise a I don't know if it was an an actual anecdote or or, or just sort of something that you imagine, but a student coming to you, uh, confronting their own growing awareness and recognition of racial issues and, and confronting the language they use and the way to explain to them sort of what's, what's right and what's wrong with their approach to it. Um, how, in, in writing the book and in approaching your scholarship, how important is the teaching of the material to that? Do you, do you reflect on that as you go, or is this something that you kind of come to at the, the end of a book? What's, the, what's your take on the relationship between your scholarship and your teaching? Um, I mean, I, for this project and, and in, all of my, in all of my work, I try to be mindful of what it would be like to teach this book. Um, and in, with particular reference to this project, right, because there is so much work now on Obama and race, have to figure out what would the value of this sort of publication be? What contribution can I make? And I think one of the key contributions that this book can make is to bring these basic ideas about race that are so important and so useful and have been established in the academy for decades now to a wider audience using Obama as the hook to get people interested. Once you've got that Obama hook and you've got people interested, you can expose them to the crucial and critical ideas about what race is and how it functions. And I think that it's dangerous to take that for granted in kind of writing a book about race. It's dangerous to kind of skip over the basics. And with respect to, you know, the relationship between my teaching and research, I never really feel as though it's some sort of extra burden or I have to concentrate especially hard to be mindful of teaching, perhaps because I teach at a liberal arts college now and I came from a liberal arts experience as an undergraduate. So it has always made sense to me that if you were going to write a book, it should be teachable. You know, the the idea of some books being quote-unquote teaching books and other books being research books, I, I suppose it might uh, best refer to the kind of level of prior knowledge you need to understand or the level of training you need to really engage the methods. I understand those distinctions, but I'm not sure that the distinctions are are especially useful um, when considering the dynamics of a classroom because those of us who care about teaching feel as though we can make any sort of material come alive regardless of the level um, that it's written. So, you know, in summary, this is, it was tremendously important to me to make this a teachable book, and I hope that one of its main contributions is that it exposes people 
not only to details about Obama's life or his administration, but to the basics of race. Yeah, and I, and I hope that, that the book is picked up because I think it really would fit so well. Not you know, not just in political science or sociology. I think there's a number of different places where students would really get a lot out of this, and I think the way it's written um, makes it um, very accessible to to students. What's what's next for you? Is is there a is there a new book project already on the horizon? Are you continuing down with this uh, similar line of research, or you're branching into other areas? What's what's on your plate? Uh, well, at the moment, I'm, I'm working on a couple of pieces that actually try to bridge my hip-hop research and my Obama research uh, that talks about, one of them, the one that I'm sort of in the middle of right now, talks about the idea of code switching and style switching and how Obama negotiates different racial performance, both in language and bodily action, and talking about parallels between his public performances and the mainstream successes of some of the most recognizable black male figures in hip-hop, folks like Jay-Z and Lil Wayne. Um, and then from there, I'm looking um, at broadening the scope a little, a little bit more and uh, thinking about some other topics along the lines of uh, cultural studies and sociology uh, that look at the intersection of pop culture and politics. And I'm, I'm just starting a project on... Um, stand-up comedians and the way they engage race and politics in, in their work. And that's at the very sort of beginning of the process. I'm just starting to get out and talk to a few folks on that front. Yeah, well, I enjoyed the book. I really enjoyed talking to you about it. Uh, Michael Jeffries is the author of Paint the White House Black, Barack Obama and the Meaning of Race in America by Stanford University Press in 2013. So just recently out. Is it is it yet available on there for Yes, it is. The official publication date was February 13th. Okay, well, well, within so this is uh, fresh, fresh off the, the press, and I hope that uh, people are able to get this because I think it's a, a really, really interesting read. Michael, thank you very much. Thank you, Heath.